Hello, college football fans, and welcome to episode five of College Football Throwdown. I'm your co-host, Alex Schmitz, and with me here today is my dad, Peter Schmitz. Good evening. That's right. We are coming to you live from, uh, or not so live, I guess, live as we're recording, uh, (laughs) from beautiful uh, L.A., Los Angeles, as well as Traverse City, Michigan, on the opposite sides of the country. That's right. Our our new reality, Alex. That's true. We're getting a good good uh, mix of, you know, uh, cultures here. A good mix of time zones. <laughs> yes. All right. So uh, we are. For those who don't know, we are a college football podcast by college football fans for college football fans. And today we're going to be talking about um, three different levels of topics. We're going to talk about national news, some Big Ten news, as well as some Nebraska specific news. Since that's the team that we're in love with. And uh, to start with, we wanted to uh, talk about an issue that's been going on within uh, the national perspective of football for quite some time, which is the whole idea of oversigning, where teams will uh, bring on more players onto their team than they can have with the 85 scholarship limit, and then find a way either through players just naturally leaving the team or getting hurt or what have you to shrink the roster down to that 85 and thus having only the 85 best players that they can get on the uh, roster. That's right, uh, Alex. And that's kind of our national subject for this week. And I wanted to mention a couple of things uh, right away. Would you uh, go over our uh, podcast location and email real quick so that if anybody who's maybe catching us for the first time knows how they might be able to get in touch? All right. Uh, well, we can find our podcast at footballthrowdown.podomatic.com. That's the website where we put up. We also are on iTunes under College Football Throwdown. And you can email us at huskerpete13 at gmail.com if you ever want to leave us an email, a question, comment, critique. We always like to hear from you guys. And uh, before we dive into the oversign discussion, I thought I might as well uh, uncork our beer here. I have it for today. So I'll do the honors. All right. Might be a little quieter because this is a bottle, but (laughs) see, I'm being authentic. Yes, you are. Who it was that was complaining about that, that you were using a can. (laughs) All right. So oversigning, what were your thoughts? Well, Alex, on the, on the subject of oversigning, the bottom line is, is it's, it's using the various methods that already exist within the structure of the NCAA's rule book to find ways to move players along and and put them into categories like medical hardship and things like that that allow them to roster manage. And this oversigning concept has has become a a, a real science uh, in recent years to the point where there are examples of teams and I'm going to I'm going to pick on a couple of SEC teams here because they tend to be the most egregious abusers of this uh, methodology primarily because their conference allows the most liberal use of of these tools and so you have a circumstance for example last year I, I'm more aware of it because our senior class our graduating classes were quite similar in size but Alabama had like 13 graduating seniors after this past football season, 2014-2015 season, and 
yet they signed a class that was like 25, 26 players in size. So basically going into their off season, they were faced with being about eight or 10 players above the 85 scholarship limit. If you counted all the players on their roster who still had remaining eligibility combined with the number that were coming in and were expected to join the team. Mm-hmm. And so when you, when you oversign by that number of players, then, you know, you kind of play it out through this, through the whole uh, spring and summer. And then at this time of year, and that's why I'm bringing it up now, this is the make or break time. This is, this is the shit or get off the pot time for these uh, roster management activities. And they start guiding players to various other uh, schools, encouraging people to go to a, a lesser school or whatever so that they can hit that 85 scholarship limit and get down to that number uh, in time for the beginning of fall camp or whatever the deadline is within the NCAA. I can't remember it's the, if it's the beginning of fall camp or the beginning of school, but it's one of those two days typically in August that they have to be at 85. But they spend the vast majority of the year way above that 85 limit. Now contrast that to a lot of other institutions that are a, m- a much more... Uh, conservative in how they approach that so that they're not forcing kids out uh, the back door where basically they generally are going to start most seasons below the 85 scholarship limit. They're going to, they're going to start a typical season, you know, in that 82, maybe even 79 range because of attrition that naturally happens. Now uh, these schools that are doing the oversigning are able to pretty much manage their roster down to 85 every time because they pretty much, Oversign so that they can guarantee themselves a full 85 allotment of, of true scholarship athletes at the beginning of every season. Mm-hmm. And that, how that is all managed is right now very imbalanced from conference to conference. Right. So that's my summary of what's going on. And this is the time of year when that's going on. And this is the time of year when, frankly, if you wanted to be a good investigative journalist, that somebody should be looking into that and doing some comparisons. And there's a great website called oversign.com uh, uh, that that people should go visit if they're not familiar with this concept. Yeah, well, it, it is definitely one of the more uh, pressing issues, I think, one of the pressing issues facing college football right now because it just gives the, the teams that do it more liberally are able to have that competitive advantage because, like you say, if, you know, uh, Purdue has 80 kids on their you know, scholarship list because of, you know, fatigue and just general kids leaving or whatever, you know, versus Alabama who has 85, you know, because they've called it down specifically to like the 85 players that they think are, you know, the best or, you know, for the ones that just leave for a variety of reasons, you know, that just gives them that much more of a competitive advantage that many more players they can use, you know, for their team. And uh, and the fact that I feel like one of the reasons why it's so hard to to address both for the media and for the NCAA is that it's so hard to prove that like you know Alabama is uh, telling X kid hey you know I'm going to set you up with this junior college school you know and you'll be able to play for my friend there and you'll do great 
so I'm going to push you out the door that way. You know, it's hard to prove that that conversation actually happened, that kid was really forced to go versus, you know, that he decided to go on his own, you know, or, or was he given money, you know, to do that or whatever, you know, it gets into these weird gray areas, and it's very hard to prove any of that. It, you, you, you hit it on the head. That's exactly right. And so the fundamental, though, the, the, the character, the intent of the rule is to protect student-athletes who, in fact, are legitimately injured and, and protect them from losing their scholarship just because they can no longer play the sport. And, and that is a completely legitimate thing, and I would never want to see that go away. But when we begin to use it for this to, to basically leverage our, our roster numbers so that we can uh, then, as a coach, kind of call the herd and, and make sure that my best uh, and healthiest 85 are available to me at the beginning of fall camp every year, you're, you're kind of abusing the kids and using them as these chips and pawns. And, and some of those kids who were promised an education and, and, and were given the, the glory, uh, you know, uh, visit and all that are then two years later or three years later being escorted out the back door quietly so that he can hit his 85 scholarship limit to me is just a, simply an unacceptable uh, compromise of what uh, the student athlete and what college football is supposed to be about. Mm-hmm. And I just want to see, I, I can understand that there needs to be some degree of oversigning for what can be predictably the natural attrition that happens every year for a variety of reasons. But that number isn't 10. It's not 10 out of 85. And so that number needs to be managed, and I think it should be managed a- across the board by at least all five of the uh, power conferences. Now that they've kind of broken away, I believe that there needs to be consistency in how those five conferences manage that particular subject so that no no one conference has that advantage. Right now, there is huge disadvantages because the Big Ten, in my opinion, uh, is trying to do the right thing by protecting the student-athlete. When somebody comes to to the... uh, to the campus and asks for a scholarship and receives that scholarship from that university, that should mean something to them. Right, that it's a commitment. They're putting effort into the school, uh, the school work to keep their grades up and everything like that. You shouldn't be able to pull their scholarship out from underneath them like that. Mm-hmm. No, I totally agree. And it gets so, back to an it, issue it, we talked about on a previous podcast about you know, the the NCAA being like the minor leagues for, you know, the NFL, you know, versus like that way of viewing the sport versus viewing it as the student from the perspective of the student athlete. You know, it's all philosophically, it all kind of hinges on that argument. Exactly, exactly. So I've hit on that subject. I hope I maybe strike a chord with some of the people that uh, are listening to the podcast and if you want to, you can go to oversign.com and take a look at some of the data. I mean, effectively, what it represents, uh, to kind of put it into perspective, is over any given five-year period of time, you know, uh, five years being including a redshirt year, so uh, that would be the roster time frame that most players find uh, that they're in a, a football team. Now, in that five-year window, the typical you know, schools of the SEC, which have the more liberal rules, are signing approximately one additional recruiting class every five years. That's what it amounts to. When you look at the number of scholarships that are provided uh, to students 
uh, over the course of five years, it ends up being 20 to 25 and sometimes upwards of 30 more scholarships than the average the averages from the, uh, the Big Ten and, uh, um, you know, some of the other conferences, the Big 12, et cetera. Although now all these other conferences are slowly increasing their number because they're recognizing that's a huge advantage that the SEC has been enjoying here for the last decade or so. All right, and now we're going to transition into the Big Ten topic for this week. Uh, on our previous podcast, Episode 3, we talked with Brian Clower about uh, the Big Ten East and where teams kind of stacked up within that division of the conference. So we thought now was a good time to talk about the Big Ten West and where preseason rankings are uh, putting the different teams and where we think that uh, things are going to fall this time around. Okay. So uh, first thing maybe would be a quick summary of what, what most of the experts, and, and I think we generally shared the view that that uh, you know the top two teams in the East were likely to be Ohio State and Michigan State in that order. And then there was there's quite a bit of, I think, room for debate about who ends up third and fourth. You know, is it Michigan or Penn State? So I think that pretty much sums up where those top four are likely to be, with Michigan being the one that's maybe the most susceptible to having that transitional year where they falter a little bit and maybe someone like Maryland, uh, you know, steps up or Indiana or whoever and and sneaks in there in in that fourth position. But that's pretty much how the top of that side of the division is likely to, to play out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then we, yeah. we would I, I shift gears to the West. Yeah, universally, yeah. Ohio State is the number one team in the Big Ten because they're, in many people's minds, the number one team in the nation. Right. Yeah, there's not a lot of argument right now on that subject. Yeah. But that's why we play the games. <laughs> it's true. Anything can happen. Yep. Uh, yeah, and then for the uh, West, on the site I'm looking at right now, which is uh, athlonsports.com. They have the West ranked with Wisconsin number one, Nebraska number two, Minnesota three, Iowa four, Northwestern five, Illinois six, and Purdue number seven. Yep, and that's pretty consistent. In fact, I looked up a site uh, that also uh, included ESPN and the Sporting News and uh, let's see here, a couple of others, and all of them across the board had Wisconsin winning the the Big Ten West. So the, they seem to be, at least in the early going here, the consensus pick for the Big Ten West. Now, you know, again, the, the optimistic Husker in me uh, would like to think that we have uh, as many reasons to believe we're capable of winning the Big Ten West as Wisconsin does. Uh, but I would also flip side of that, uh, both Wisconsin and us have a number of question marks, including new coaching staffs that that could change up, you know, that right. Mm-hmm. For sure. So and so. it's perfectly reasonable, like we just talked about on the on the previous podcast, that there's a lot of question marks at Nebraska. You know, not only just with Riley in general, but also. You know, we still don't know exactly what's going on with the quarterback position. You know, we have a couple areas where we're, we have some young guys coming in, maybe not as much depth as we would like in a roster. So there definitely are holes that can be exploited, you know, could be exploited if the season played out a certain way. Exactly right. And, and, and really, if you look at 
in terms of uh, program stability and kind of a, uh, a trend that's already been established, it's Minnesota. And so Minnesota is kind of that dark horse that I think is a very legitimate contender for the Big Ten West division. Uh, because, uh, again, they do have a couple of tough games they have to play in conference that might uh, derail them a little bit. But but if they can uh, hold service, if you will, in their games against Nebraska and Wisconsin, I think they would still ultimately control their own destiny. I think Iowa is a team that, that appears to be uh, likely to take a step back. Northwestern is, is a bit of an enigma. Uh, enigma. I, I don't know what to expect from them. I really don't. And then uh, Purdue is still, you know, fighting that up uphill battle. And from all the um, things going on, uh, or that at least we're hearing about with Illinois, you know, they're a team that has some talent. But you just question whether that particular uh, uh, program is is heading in a positive direction. Hmm. Has there been some like news with Illinois recently? I haven't really been following that. Yeah, uh, they, uh, their head coach has has finds himself in the embroiled in a bit of a controversy. Whereas there's been a few players who have recently left the program, uh, who have expressed, uh, uh, you know, publicly that they were not treated properly, uh, abusive, if you will, um, was the term. And so, uh, you know, he's out there having to kind of defend his methods as a coach. And it's kind of called into question. You know, they're not winning very much on the field, and all of a sudden he's got some players quitting and and speaking to the media or speaking on social media about how they were treated, and it doesn't speak favorably of that coach and his kind of threatening style of uh, motivation. Mm-hmm. I see. Yeah. Well. Yeah. I'm, I'm not personally. I'm not super concerned about Illinois and Purdue in terms of you know being tough opponents you know but every every other team you know on the roster you know northwestern iowa have tripped nebraska up in the past um so you can't you know even if they maybe are a little down this year you can't totally uh overlook them you know they could totally surprise us absolutely i mean that and that's the thing is that when i look at this division i would i would have to honestly say that if I'm if I'm looking at the roster and the stability and all those kinds of things, I would probably have to pick Wisconsin just because recent history says Wisconsin beats us, and that we would fall in line at that number two, just like a lot of these national publications have have placed it. But I I, I think it's not at all an upset if it turns out that Nebraska wins that division. Now again, I, I would say uh, Minnesota is the team that both Nebraska and Wisconsin need to fear a little bit. Now, I don't know Wisconsin-Minnesota's game and, and where it's played. I didn't look at that particular schedule to determine. But I do know that we play uh, Minnesota up in Minnesota. So that becomes a very pivotal game for Nebraska. That's right. Any final thoughts on uh, the, these preseason rankings? Personally, I think Wisconsin 1, Nebraska 2, Minnesota 3 is a very reasonable ranking of how the season is going to go. Obviously, as a Nebraska fan, I hope that we manage to find a way to beat Wisconsin, you know, and win the games we need to win to get to the championship. Uh, but it could very easily go Wisconsin's way, I think. I would agree. I would agree. The only advantage, of course, is that the Wisconsin game is in Lincoln this year. And so we do have 
the advantage of you know playing playing the game here at home or in Lincoln rather, and so that should give us a little bit of an advantage just because of that home field, mm-hmm. and so hopefully that that's the lever arm. But that means we, we would have to pretty much win out because Wisconsin's schedule is quite favorable and and a little easier, frankly, than ours. So we, we don't have any room to to uh, you know for mistake because we play Michigan State and that Michigan State game um, could be you know a big big deal. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a big game to look forward to. And uh, yep. now we want to transition over to a comment we got on the Potomatic website few weeks ago from uh, AJ he said uh, good stuff guys future discussions maybe about the change in defense at NU and so we wanted to kind of transition into our Nebraska topic for this week and talk about uh, what the changes have been in terms of our defensive strategy since Bo left right now you know so bottom line here is that you know I, I, I don't want to dive in too deeply just because I think that uh, you know, number one, I, I don't want to claim to know more than I really know. And number two, um, uh, we want to keep this pretty simple and, and straightforward. And maybe we can go into greater detail, you know, as we learn more about this, the specific scheme that they're going to, to implement. But uh, the significant change uh, from what I can, you know, draw uh, in my research is that uh, historically here in recent years, and frankly, not just with with Bo Pelini's uh, tenure, but the traditional method of defense uh, in in most of the history of college football would have been one of containment, one where most defensive schemes were designed to uh, funnel the flow of of the the offense into the middle of the field, into the middle of the defense, so that basically you would be directing the flow of the offense as, uh, into where more players were so you could clutter things up and make a tackle and you'd be chasing a player into your other teammates. That's the basic containment philosophy of defense. Now, um, the these newer uh, defenses have a, a second philosophy, and that's the one that is favored by uh, Coach Banker, who is our new defensive coordinator, which is referred to as a spill defense. And its philosophy uh, changes that concept almost on its head to some extent in that they, their vision is to you know, push folks to drive them parallel, that the offense is pushed towards the sidelines, using the sideline as kind of almost a 12th man and trying to stretch people out. So you're, you're basically filling gaps inside so that you force that running back or that running scheme to run to the outside and then you're expecting your flow of your defense from from the other side of the field and from the secondary to basically drive that guy to the sidelines and ultimately out of bounds before he makes very much forward progress mm-hmm. and so the concept would be to kind of force quarterbacks to throw passes that are going to be on the outside corners uh, where which is one of the hardest throws to make and or uh, force running plays to the outside. So that changes the entire uh, defensive uh, um, uh, rules for any defensive player, not to, to basically drive them from a, uh, you know, maintaining control and leverage on an outside shoulder to maybe maintaining control and leverage on the inside shoulder, shoulder to, to, to force that 
that running back, for example, to bounce to the outside of you rather than bouncing to the inside of you. And so that philosophy is literally the exact opposite of what our players have been using. And so the question is how effective can our coaching staff be about reinstructing and getting that to where that's so second nature that it's instinctive for our players to do it that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. Does that, does that make sense to you? Oh, yeah, it makes sense. And that, I kind of learned about the spill defense before. Uh, it is interesting because, in theory at least, that kind of defense really prioritizes speed. You know, how quickly can you get to the outside? And historically, Nebraska hasn't been a football team that's known for, like, its you know great speed. Like, even the classic, you know, uh, games in the 90s, you know, Miami was the team that everybody was talking about because they were so athletic and fast, you know, whereas Nebraska was more of the physical team that would just, you know, ground it down your throat. So it's kind of a, a difference in perception of how we see the black shirts as well. Right, exactly. And and so, the, you know, the question is how, how quickly can our players embrace that and ultimately, you know, become really really good at it so that it's second nature right well and we had talked in the past one of the you know one of the great things about Bo was that he had a great defensive mind and he had this unique scheme that uh in his early years especially when he had great players like Ndamukong Sue on our team uh were able to uh stop these spread offenses that were taking over the country and really dominate people uh, but then, as time went on, his offenses adjusted a bit to what Bo was doing, and uh, our players kind of struggled with the complexity of what he, his scheme required. You know, you'd see guys on the field, you know, uh, looking to the sidelines, trying to figure out what to do, you know, uh, maybe seeing some of that confusion playing just because the system was so complex in their heads. Uh, and it could be argued that. Uh, a more simple defense, you know, that's more not simple in terms of how effective it can be, but simple in terms of what it asks of the player to uh, make split seconds decisions on could be very advantageous to us. Absolutely. And so it's a combination of, of, of making those reads simple and then getting those players to react instinctively because, you know, speed becomes less important if you've got the guys out there being able to be decisive and moving, you know, with the first step direction. Because if, if not, if, they're, if their feet are in quicksand, as they say, and they're still trying to figure out what my read is supposed to be, or a defense can create that period of, of indecision and confusion, then, then you've lost as a defense. And that's uh, kind of played out for us in recent years against Wisconsin, where we would, uh, we would defend them well until they found a particular play or series of plays that worked, and then we would completely blow up and, and couldn't stop uh, uh, you know, the little sisters of the poor on that play at, from that point forward for the rest of the game. And, and that kind of just fundamental and almost complete breakdown in, in discipline and ultimately confidence and execution you know, is unacceptable. And so we're hoping that with this new staff, they're going to bring, uh, you know, a, a method of a simplicity that allows those players to just react instinctively. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And transitioning another um, facet of the new coaching staff that we have to deal with, 
here at Nebraska is our new offensive coordinator and the new type of offense that we'll be running. Um, and that's been kind of kept a little bit under wraps. We don't really know exactly what the strategy is going to be the philosophy going forward because during the spring game they played a very vanilla, you know, standard plays, not really showing off very much of uh, what we might be doing in the future, partially maybe to just, you know, obscure it to the media and to our fellow uh rival teams, but also probably because of the simple fact that they haven't had the time to really teach the kids whatever this new system is. You know, they had so little time during spring that they couldn't quite transition them fully to that new way of thinking. Exactly right. And so the, the, the one of the big question marks for us going into this season is going to be, you know, what type of offense are we really going to run? How much are they going to transition away from what uh, our offense coordinator Langsdorf and uh, Coach Riley have historically done, which which tended to be more of a pass-based offense rather than a, a run or athletic quarterback-centered offense, which is what we've been running, you know, during the Bo Pelini years. And so the question is, we've got we've got uh, round pegs and square holes type of deal, um, uh, you know, uh, and so the problem is. Uh, what are we going to do about that? Are we uh, going to introduce more running than has historically been a part of the quarterback role uh, for Mike Riley's offenses, or are we going to instead, you know, kind of force that new concept in and just find the quarterback that we have on the roster that best executes what they want to do? And it seems that they have kind of already indicated that they're hitching their wagon to, to Tommy Armstrong as our starter in all likelihood and that they're going to use his athleticism to the extent that they can. And so they're the ones that are adjusting their concept to match what our talent uh, that is on, on campus can do. And I, I think that's the wisest way to approach it. And with their history and experience, I believe they can do that very effectively. But it's still an unknown as to exactly what that balance is going to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I definitely think... It wouldn't be good for them to come in and ask Tommy Armstrong to start throwing it all over the place, you know, because the simple fact of the matter is we don't have that much confidence in his arm. You know, he's made some great passes, but he's also shown the uh, repetitive ability to, or lack of ability to maybe make the split split second decisions you need to in the pocket, you know, to go through your progressions and, you know, set your feet right those kind of basic uh, passing quarterback things. And I'm sure that the new uh, quarterback coach that we have has been drilling that into his head. I'm sure he'll be better at that this season than he was last. Um, But I don't think it would be good to totally change the offensive philosophy when you have a quarterback like that already implanted in your system. Now, maybe a few years down the road, you know, uh, he Riley will work with what he has right now, but maybe he's going to start recruiting that kind of quarterback and those sorts of uh, other offensive talents to try to transition us from where we are right now into that sort of system if that's what he really wants to do. And one of the great things, uh, great strengths of having Mike Riley as our coach is he's actually been a coach who's, who's coached within offensive systems uh, as head coach that were very run-centric where he had 1,000-yard rushers and, and, and then a year later had the leading receiver you know, in the Pac-12. So he's a guy that has been able to take whatever talent was most productive on his team and maximize it. 
And so you would expect that's what he's going to do again this year. It's just a matter of what does that look like? And, and is it going to have an identity? Because, again, I would say that as, as, as Nebraska fans, one of the things we would be critical of, of uh, our previous offensive coordinator and, and Bo, who, whose ever fault that was, our, our offense did not tend to have much of an identity. We had uh, you know, a hodgepodge of, of offensive capabilities, and we just kind of threw them on the wall to see what would stick as opposed to building a, what would appear to be a, a logical game plan and a constructive you know, counter uh, uh, type of, of uh, game plan. It was, it was much more of a sporadic thing. And so it'll be interesting to see how much more organized this group is. Yeah. I remember there was uh, one section of games during Sean Watson's run where we like did some wildcat stuff. And I remember you were really excited about that, like uh, liking the, the results those plays were getting and hoping that maybe we do like more of that, like implement that as like a permanent staple of our game plan. And then that never really ended up happening. We barely saw it again. Right. And well, until, until he left and we got a new offensive coordinator and, and, but then we had that and we had some wonderful elements, but then they weren't put together in a logical way that that led you to believe that we had an identity and mm-hmm. so that was always kind of the struggle but uh, i i can't say that i i would ever accuse tim um uh, um oh gosh I'm, I'm, I'm already forgetting our old offensive coordinator uh name but uh, uh uh he's now at ohio state and it'll be interesting to see how he does as co-offensive coordinator there um you know to see if he can meld and get somebody who maybe understands the the whole formulation of a of a game plan, and then take his creativity and his and his breadth of, of offensive skill, and put it all together. If he does, then watch out. Ohio State's going to be even more prolific. All right, all right. Well, I think that's a good place to wrap up this episode. I think we covered some good topics today. Yeah. Um, if you guys enjoyed this podcast, you can email us at huskerpeat13 at gmail dot com. You can subscribe to us on iTunes on under College Football Throwdown. Uh, visit football footballthrowdown, or er, yes football is our website for the where we another website where we host the podcast and uh thank you for being here uh to talk with me about this dad i think this was a good show we covered some good topics both nebraska and not right hey and and is it also under college football throwdown or is it just football throwdown I, it's uh, the website is football throwdown because I didn't want to make it college football throwdown because that's that's much longer to type. <laughs> I get it. All right. See, I'm, I have that 21st century mindset here. <laughs> yes. All right. Very good. Well, thank you for listening, college football fans, and we will see you next time.